This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to go over the keys to victory for both Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky, head of UFC 251. Speaking of which, we're going to talk to Aljamain Sterling today. He'll preview the Jan and Aldo fight as well as the rest of the title fights on that card. And we got to talk about Mike Perry getting into a street altercation. Oh, boy. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here at 1 p.m. East Coast time on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right. Happy Thursday to everyone. About 48 hours away. A little more than that. Maybe closer to something like, what is it? The fights will start about 6 p.m., so uh, about 53 hours away from the start of UFC 251. There actually was some news. I'm not going to get to it to start the show. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But there was some news about the finances behind Fight Island. It is, uh, you're going to want to hear that. Because all these people being like, now's not the time for fighter pay conversations, right? Now's not a good time for fighters to ask for more money. Turns out it actually is a great time, which we knew we knew already. But once you hear this, you'll know it even more. All right, but that's a conversation for later in the show. So yesterday we started the program looking at the first of the three title fights on the card in ascending order in terms of how it will take place on fight night once the pay-per-view kicks off. So we talked about the Bantamweight title fight between Peter Yan and Jose Aldo. Let's move up the card, as we will on Saturday, to the featherweight co-main event. It is the rematch between current champion Volkanovski and former champ Max Holloway. Of course, the last time they met, it was the opposite. It was reigning champion Max Holloway and title challenger, Volkanovsky, and he took the title from him. I went back and I rewatched this contest, as well as some other ones, to sort of get a sense of things as we head into Saturday. I had forgotten that two of the judges had it 48-47, and then one had it 50-45. I think I would have had it 49-46, something like that. Um, you could see the look on Max Holloway's face. He really thought he had done it by the time the fight was over, which is surprising, but neither here nor there. Okay, so let's talk about this. What went wrong for Max the first time? Now, when I say keys to victory, I want to be clear about something. I'm not in a position to do high-level strategy recommendations, but because this is a bit of a rematch, I can tell you what guys do well in, and I can tell you where things went wrong the first time. And so we can bring it around back. I mean, we got a fighter as senior as Max Holloway. There's not too many ways he can reinvent the wheel here about what he does well. I mean, he can mix things up to be sure, and he can win this fight. I want to be clear about that. But in terms of like the very specific details of strategy, that's a little bit above my pay grade. But I can tell you where things went wrong the first time and then where things like what is happening in fights where generally he does well. You know, what's interesting. If I had to ask you, Tell me what was, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't working all that well, but tell me what was working as a particular strike for Max Holloway in the first three rounds of the Volkanovsky fight. Give me a memorable strike he was landing. I bet most of you 
would be hard-pressed to come up with something. One, I couldn't remember offhand. And two, even going back and watching, the round would be over, and I'd be like, what, what did Max land? You know, you look at the numbers, okay, there's something there, but not much. A lot of it was blocked. A lot of it was, you know, he rolled with it. A lot of it just wasn't clean. And here was the other part about it. The first three rounds, you know, Max is a rhythm fighter where he likes to build and build and build and build. He's also a volume fighter. And in the first three rounds, Volkanovsky had held uh, Holloway to basically around 20 strikes landed around, which is low for him. He needs to be in the mid to high 30s or 40s or higher when he's really doing that work on these guys, right? That's where it needs to be. So you could just tell he could never seem to land anything of significance. Why? Well, there's a lot of technical details that go into it. Suffice to say, uh, let me just make it as simple as I can. Volkanovsky was doing a lot of things. He was disrupting the rhythm of Holloway. He was um, going first, right? He was often landing before Holloway ever had a chance. He was switching things up either with stance or entries or uh, a lot of times he would kick uh, Holloway back away and he knew Holloway would blitz into him and then he'd land a hook over the top intercepting him as he came in. So he would be getting off first. He'd be disrupting the rhythm. He'd be changing up looks. You know, he's hiding behind a similar kind of feature, all different kinds of strikes that might come your way. So it looks like one thing. And you think, oh, a left hook is coming, and then a right hook comes. Oh, I think a left hook is coming because he throws left hooks from this position, and it's a leg kick, or it's a body shot, or it's whatever. He was really good about that. So here is a key to victory for Holloway, and this is much easier said than done. He needs to get off first, and he has to make sure he is pumping out volume because in the fifth round when they were trading more, that is the round to me that looked like Holloway had won. And the big key adjustment in this fight, if you recall, was that Max is a bit of a head hunter. So if you look at the fight between Max and Aldo, 70%, the the rematch anyway, 77% of the targeted strikes from Max went to the head. Go to Brian Ortega, 84% for Max Holloway targeted to the head. Go to the first Jose Aldo fight, 74% to the head go to the anthony pettis fight now he did some body work there because the guy had missed weight so that was a little bit more but still 51 to 30 percent if you're looking at the the body there uh go to the ricardo lamas fight right 77 percent to the uh head go to the frankie edgar fight which he had won 84 percent to the head now what does it say for volkanovsky how many did he land and this was what he was trying to, to mix it up just 63 just 63. The big adjustment that he had made in the fifth round was he went a lot to the body. I think he's going to have to pick up with that again. Here's the only downside for that. And we've been over this with the Dominic Reyes and John Jones fight. You can go to the body and you can land a lot, but it's very easy to camouflage that. Right? If I punch you straight in the nose, Right. And I'm, you know, I'm a fairly big person. I'm not saying I have otherworldly power, but, you know, all heavyweights kind of have power. It's going to pop your head back. Right. Maybe it doesn't hurt you all that bad. Maybe you think I don't hit hard. Fine. But at least it has this demonstrative moment where your head literally snaps back. Yeah. 
if I punch you in the stomach and you no sell it, it's hard to know exactly what happened there. And the body's going to be easier to reach because Volkanovsky has good head movement. He might be leaning off. He might be slipping. He might be covering. You'll note that when Max started really going to the body, he would bring Volkanovsky's hands down, and then he could land a little bit more. Do you know what the numbers are for per round? In the first round, Holloway only landed 19 strikes. In the second and third round, just 22. You know what he landed in the fifth? 34. 34 he was able to land. And of those, he went 14 to the body. That was the most. In round one, he only went four. Round two, he only went two. Round three, just three. Now, he upped it in round four with nine. He had 14 in the fifth round. It is crucial. But here's the key. If the most you can land is just to the body, that's not enough to win either. Because he can just no-sell it. It has to be shots to the body that eventually lead back upstairs. And how you manage that, how you mix that, how you change that, how you make that possible, I leave that into the hands of Gracie Technics and his coach and to Max himself. But if he just goes back to headhunting like he did before, he's going to get intercepted, he's going to get leg kicked, he's going to get rhythm disrupted, and Alex is going to go first. He has to take those things away. He has to do body shots that lead to the head. He cannot let Volkanovsky go first constantly. And the big key here is, why was Volkanovsky able to go first so often? Because Max does a ton of work behind the jab. And Volkanovsky in the first three, four rounds completely took that away. Either with hand fighting, glove control, um, moving into it, smothering it, right? So either parrying it, smothering it, going first. Max couldn't get the jab two going, the jab three, the jab one, two, three, the jab four. He constantly took away the jab. Max is going to have to find a way to get back behind the jab. The jab has to really kind of get flowing there. So what am I looking for from Max? I'm looking for getting going first. I don't think stance matters as much as they made it out to be the first time around. Body work that leads to the head. Absolutely critical. Cannot have his rhythm disrupted. Cannot be intercepted. Has to find a way to go first. These are all the things that either went right or, in the bad sense, were taken away from Max that are key ingredients to his success. You have to kind of understand a little bit also Volkanovsky's side of things. I said this yesterday. I'll say it again. I just don't think people understand how good he is. I don't think they understand how good his team is. I don't think they understand what he's capable of. So here is what he is up against, and he has to build on the first time. As I mentioned, he was able to get off first. He was able to shut down, not the entire fight, but for long stretches of it. He was able to shut down the jab. He was able to um, just sort of maneuver Holloway around, intercept him as he liked to close space all kinds of stuff. And he would do it where he'd be sitting behind one kind of position and you would think that a particular strike might be coming from there and he would switch it up constantly. So you would look at him, you tried to make a read and you can't tell if it's a left hook coming, if it's a right straight, if it's a leg kick, you just, you just don't know. So it kind of freezes you not for long, but in these high level fights, They don't need to freeze you for very long. They got to freeze you for just an instant. And that's all the time they need 
to do real damage. So here is the key for for Holloway. He's got to continue to build on what he did the last time, which is to say nothing he did was broken. There are some questions about how he has to handle some of the body work because that's going to be real difficult for him, I think. If Max is diligent about it and he can actually affect change with it, that was the problem with Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes kind of gassed and couldn't affect change with the body shots. He couldn't get his hands of John Jones to come down. The good news for Volkanovsky is he has an absolutely unbelievable gas tank. The truth is, so does Max Holloway. Right? Max has a very, very good gas tank. And so some of the things that John Jones was able to bank on, which was a guy who'd never been in a five-round fight before, gassing late, I, you know, I don't think Volkanovsky can count on that. So here is really what he is up against. And it's a simple problem to solve, but a difficult problem to solve at the same time. Which is to say, all the things he picked up on before about Holloway. He likes to inch forward. He likes to lead with his jab. Some of that might be changed in terms of the way he circles. Right In the first Jose Aldo fight, he circled outside the power hand. In the rematch, he circled into the power hand. Why? To smother the right, to constantly force Aldo to circle backwards, essentially, with his right hand behind him, the power shot, and it worked perfectly. But the key ingredients, as I mentioned about Holloway's game, volume, pace, rhythm, build, none of that really changes for Volkanovsky as a, as a task. What he has to do is merely change up the way in which he reveals his answers to them. In other words, if before he would dip with the left shoulder and then come over the top with a left hook, now he has to change some of the setups for it, some of the, the way in which he conceals it. Volkanovsky, and this is what folks don't seem to understand, Volkanovsky is a master of rhythm disruption. He, by the way, does such a phenomenal job managing distance. And the key to his game, and this is what gave Max a problem for a long time, is that he puts more unique and difficult to decipher camouflage on his game than virtually anyone else in the UFC. Maybe Adesanya is better about it. That's about it. People don't, they can't see what he's trying to do. Because he conceals it. I mean, that's the key to this whole game. If you just walk out there and start winging shots, you'll beat people who suck at fighting. You're not going to beat anybody good. It is hard to land a clean shot on a good fighter who does not want you to land clean on them. So you have to trick them. You have to conceal what you're doing. You have to camouflage it so that they can't tell. That is the entire strategy that is what your challenge is. And Volkanovsky might be better at it than virtually anyone. But the way in which he conceals it, the rhythms by which he does it, the weapons he chooses, um, the feints he picks, the hand fighting choices, the stance, all of that he has to kind of switch because it will force the same challenge back onto Max that he had the first time, which is what the hell am I looking at here? If I can't tell as a high-level fighter what I'm looking at, how can I make choices about how to attack it? If my rhythm is being disrupted, how can I ever get going? So Max kind of is who he is. The trick for Volkanovsky is he can't trot out the same tools that he used to get there the first time. He has to create a series of patterns and new ones this time. Now, not entirely new.
but some knew. And there's one more X factor, I think, that doesn't get discussed enough. When I went back and I watched the first fight, I recall after, I think, the third round, they really wanted uh, Volkanovski's corner. They really wanted him to start wrestling more, high-low stuff. You'll note before, he was going high-low in the sense of um, leg kick, left hook over the top, right? So I'm hitting low, I'm hitting high. He didn't do a lot of level change feints. He did a little bit of fainting, kind of like inching forward, you know, kind of jerking your head forward, which is somewhat level fa- level fainting, uh, level change fainting, but not exactly. I think you're going to see a lot more of that, and I think you're going to see a lot more wrestling attempts, which is going to be tiresome, but I actually think you're going to see him. He already uses them anyway to close out rounds. You go back and you watch the Aldo fight. He'd win four, four and a half minutes of striking, pick up a single. He's not really looking to finish it, or maybe a knee tap. Just drives you into the fence with it, holds you there. Round expires, he's won. I think this time he's going to really put some effort into it. Maybe even try to get behind Max. Max is really good about finding an overhook and a crossface in those scenarios. By the way, Volkanovsky had really good luck with uh, and success with elbows in those spaces himself. So be on the lookout for that. But I think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see Volkanovsky constantly smother um, not constantly. I think you're going to see smothering be one of the tools, I should say. Let me clarify that. Be one of the tools that Volkanovsky uses as a way to disrupt Mac. And he has got to have some kind of answer for the body work because you can see his elbows drop in the fifth and that leaves open his head and then Max would connect with it. There cannot be that the second time around because Max will go on fire in the fifth. And... I'm not sure how good or bad Volkanovski's chin is, but I'm going to guess he doesn't want to trade with Max in the way that Max wants to trade with him. Cannot imagine that that's the scenario. So it's a hell of a fight, folks. It's a hell of a contest. The thing that I come back to with Max Holloway is I think he is talented enough to figure these things out. The question is, you know, I've always said this, the best rematches tend to be when there's time apart. When the guys have had chances to develop and change and evolve their game, there's not a whole lot they can do. There's some. There's not a whole lot they can do between the first and second times other than what they did before and then switched up a little bit. So if Max had a deficit the first time, I anticipate that being there the second time. It's not like Shogun Machida where you're like, man, Shogun really took it to him a little bit and just got robbed by the judges. To me, it was pretty clear. So how do you make up that technical gap? Man, you cannot let Volkanovsky faint you into slowing down. You cannot let that dude smother you. Oh, by the way, one more note on this that Max did really well. In the fifth round, you begin to see Max, I think fourth or fifth, Max started driving knees to the body. Started driving knees to the body there. And that really... When he closed the distance, as opposed to trying to headhunt with him, and that paid dividends. And you'll recall one thing that um, Eugene Behrman said on the show: what they wanted Max to, to do was, of course, Max was not coached by Eugene Behrman. Eugene Behrman was coaching Volkanovski, but it was to get him to lean on his back leg more as a method of slowing him down and not getting his punches off with the same kind of power or quickness, right? So they're really forcing his weight backwards. I wonder if they're going to be able to do that again, and if so, what method? Leg kicks, yes, but are they going to change up how they do it a little bit? 
That's going to be one of the keys as well. Fight Nations busted open. The one and only Keith Lay. I don't think anything screams a moment louder than becoming the first ever singles double champion. This one right here is my moment. And I have etched my name in the history books as the first ever North American and NXT champion at the same time. This is a fortuitous event that I hope to capitalize on in ways that even I have found them just yet. Busted open. Monday through Saturday, 9 to noon Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. All right, let's get to him uh, now. I think he joins us on the magic of Zoom. Cobb, is he ready? Not quite. He's get, getting a mic in front of him right now. Oh, there you go. He's got an official setup. He's got the microphone. Look <laughs> at this. He's got a couch. He's got a regular house. He's got UFC posters in the back. Look at this guy. He's the. He, you know what? You, you start giving these fighters podcasts, and they think they're the next Joe Rogan. That's what that, that's what's happening here. I can tell. <laughs> All right. I think he's ready. Uh, Aljamain, can you hear me or no? Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, there he is. Hi, Aljamain. How are you? Good on this fine uh, Wednesday morning. <laughs> Thursday. Thursday. Afternoon. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> you've, been partying, you've been partying that hard, huh? A little bit of, uh, yeah, a little tequila. Never hurt nobody. Certainly doesn't. Uh, by the way, what's up with the, is this your, is this your like podcasting studio? I see some gloves over here. Uh, are these posters of cards you were on? What are the posters? Yeah, cards that I've been on in the past and, uh, some good, some bad. I think these ones, I've, yeah, I've won all these fights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a couple of, yeah, there's a Ronda fight in there too. That's pretty cool. Did they, did you that get Ronda to debut. sign it? That was my debut. No, they, so I moved into a basement and it got flooded and all my posters. This is when I just got to UFC pretty much. So I didn't have the money. And um, yeah, my signed poster with all the fighter names that were on that card got flooded and ruined. So this was one of the backups that they had in there. They normally give us three. One's always signed. Fair enough. By the way, I think I have the same uh, boom arm for my microphone that I have. I don't use it for this show, but for my podcasting, I think I have the exact same one. It's the yeah, blue like one, it. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very blue good. Yeti. Blue Yeti, exactly, yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's get to it here a little bit. We wanted to break some stuff down for you. Let's talk about, with you rather, let's talk about this Aldo and this Jan fight. Um, we, we looked this up. This is, I think, in terms of the odds right? This is the most Aldo has ever been an underdog in a fight. Now it's not significantly more than he was in the second Max Holloway fight, but still more. Do you, do you agree that the, that he should be labeled that way? Honestly, I, I think, I don't think he should be that big of an underdog in my personal opinion. Uh, I know these guys used to train with each other and with that being said, I think Aldo's hands still look as great as ever, still look sharp. I mean, you watched the fight with Marlon Marais. He did a lot of great things in that fight. Stunned Marlon right after that head kick, cracked him. That was like pretty much the only trouble that he really ran into in that fight. Um, there was a few other times he got touched a little bit, but it wasn't as significant as that uh, head kick that initially hit him from Marlon right out of the gate. Marlon does something really tricky where he looks down. He, he's throwing a switch kick. He makes eye contact. And then he looks down and then he throws a switch kick at the same time and it makes you think he's always going low, but then it comes high and it really throws you off. Um, he used to see him hit a lot of people with that. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's, um, I think this fight's a lot closer than what people are giving it credit for. I think Aldo looked great. The only thing that I have to question is his chin. Because when Max hit him with that one-two, one-two combination, he dropped him in the first fight with that and ended it and dropped him in the second fight. And ended it, and that's the the two things that I have to 
keep into consideration when trying to see who's going to win this matchup. And then you got Peter Young, who's fresher. And you remember Max Holloway got tired when he fought Mark Hominick. He gassed out when he was saying, oh, 145 is too tough to make. Now, all of a sudden, he's magically making 135. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Pideon definitely hits harder and uh, could put him out. Let me ask you about this, because people keep asking me, and I certainly have no good answer, which is, how come Aldo has really moved away from his leg kicks? Like, we saw Dustin Poirier. There's a good reason to think that he has hip problems, because we know he had hip uh, surgery and he had uh, – with the stem cell therapy, and you know, he just can't seem to get his hips to turn over the same way. Do you think it's something like that with Aldo? I don't know. It's, it's fascinating because that was his biggest weapon. What everyone talked about, you would think that when you have a weapon that everyone's so fearful of, you. I think even his fight with, with uh, Ricardo Lamas, he destroyed his leg. It wasn't even that was a title fight, if I remember correctly. He, yep. he had mm-hmm. nothing for him. Couldn't do a single thing, and they kind of just got away from that altogether. And uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's fatiguing him more than he would like. I, mean, I know that fight with the Korean zombie, it looked like he was slowing down right before the zombie's shoulder came out of the socket, which was either a freak accident or a pre-existing injury. And he was doing good in that fight against Jose Aldo, I thought. So there's, there's a couple of questions that we won't really know unless he tells us truthfully himself. And um, it's hard to say, man. I, I, he might have just fell in love with the boxing too much. I, he likes to do this. Thing where he's slipping and ripping like he's Mike Tyson-esque kind of, kind of a stance. And uh, he does good coming over with the right hand and then digging to that liver shot with the left hook. So, I mean, that could just be it. And if he gets back to those kicks against a guy like Peter Young who stands up straight up and down, I think he, have, he could have a lot of success. Yeah, size up Peter Young for us here. What do you make of him, good and bad? I think he's plotting. Um, that's bad. I think he has great cardio. That's good. Um... I think he's willing to take one to give you two or three. And uh, I think that's good in terms of just uh, being able to sit down and bite down on your mouthpiece and, and go after his opponent, go after the target. And when he smells blood, he goes after it. He's not one to like ease up off of it. So he has good finishing instincts. So uh, you see the fight with Uriah Faber, he dropped him a couple of times and he took his time picking his shots, but he was still going for it. Not like playing it safe and still hammering him, having fun with it at the same time. And, uh, I think he likes being in there. I think that's the main thing, man. So uh, you got a guy like that who doesn't mind being hit and likes to hit people. I think uh, it, it, it gives us a very good dynamic fight matchup, especially with the Jose Aldo who, who's in there sitting in the pocket. So I look at this matchup. Aldo likes to sit in the pocket. Pion likes to plot forward. And if you give him a stationary target like Uriah Faber did, you know, it throws the hands out with the gesture. Man, one, two bites down on his mouthpiece and comes back with that southpaw left cross and sits him down on his ass. And uh, I think um, that's, that's pretty much what I make of him. I, I, and he, he mixes up the kicks. It's MMA. He mixes up the kicks, the knees, the elbows, and the clinch. He does a lot of good stuff, all high level. The one thing that I, I, I was going back and just watching some tape, if you look at the uh, – one thing that just sort of really occurred to me in the second Holloway and Aldo fight is just Max making Aldo work and work and work and work by, like, just constantly sort of staying on him. And Jan's a little bit like that, right? I mean, I'm not saying they're equivalent, but I'm just saying that, like, in a five-round fight, who knows how much that cuts to 135 drains Aldo. He looked pretty good in the Marais fight, all things considered. But um, if, if Jan is making him work, do you think that the additional cut – to 35 will play a factor. I mean, how, how much does that, does that play into it with the workload? I, I think so. It's a different fight. When he's chasing Marlon Marais, it's a lot more tiring for Marlon to circle on his bike for 
10 minutes of the, of the 15 minute fight and in comparison to you being a person that's pressing the action. So I can see that being a big issue as well as Max being the taller guy. I think that's what also posed that threat. You know, he's creeping forward, the bigger, longer, rangier fighter. And obviously he's a big boy. He can't just take him down. So he has to be on his bike a little bit more. Pedion could probably do the same exact thing. Keep the pressure on him, stay in his face. Same way he was stalking Uriah Faber. Every time Faber tried to cut, he was cutting him off, not just circling and following. He was cutting him off and staying right in front of him. So Faber had to engage every time that Pedion wanted to engage in that fight. And that's what I like about his style. Um, but I do think it leaves some openings. And it, he caught Jimmy Rivera against the cage. Jimmy Rivera was outboxing the entire time until those ends of the first and second round. So I'm just trying to – I know you can't do MMA math. I'm expecting that Pedion got better. I'm expecting that Jose Aldo got better. But you can't get better with your chin. You can only try to protect it a little bit better and a little bit more safely in the fight. Outside of that, you get clipped. I think Pedion has the power when sometimes you see him when he throws that shot, he leans all his body weight into it where he's to the point falling forward. Um, so I, I, I think it's the crisper boxing of Aldo versus – the heavy power of Pedion, who's willing to go for broke. And, um, of course, the, the tight clinch with the knees and the elbows and um, the kicks, man. I think the kicking game is going to be a big factor, and maybe that's going to make Aldo want to start kicking him back. All right. Does this one go the distance, you think? I, don't, I can't see how it does. Their styles, they, they both go forward. It's either Giannis finishing Aldo, and I can see that, or it's probably going to go the distance. I, don't, I can't see Aldo finishing Jan. Unless he can lay one of those liver shots, I, I don't know. I mean, he put Jeremy Stevens down, who's, you know, a pretty tough dude. Um, but I like to think Pedion's a little bit more conditioned in the, in the abdomen area, you know. So, And that's no slight at Jeremy, but I think it's just a little bit different. Like, his physique just looks a little bit more tolerant of, of body shots, if, if that makes sense. Hmm. Seems like he spends a little bit more time doing core work. Fair enough. Uh, Aljamain Sterling joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Let's actually get your... Uh assessment of the next two title fights quickly if we can holloway and volkanovsky man you know it's amazing i just don't think people realize how good volkanovsky is i'm not saying that max can't win this or won't you know god who knows right but i do think that there's a lot of people being like well you know maybe maybe alex got away with one in the first one i don't think he got away with one i think he earned it fair and square yeah i watched it we watched it over to try to analyze and break it down so when I first watched it, I, I had it really close. I didn't know if it was enough to take the fight. Um, but rewatching it, I could see why Alex won. I think that was the right decision for that night. Um, Max got away from his kicking game. Same thing, kind of fell in love with the boxing. We've seen the combinations, and I think he kind of gotten away from what got him to the show in the first place. And I think his versatility and his, his striking is what made him so dangerous. You know, he's throwing spinning back kicks against the cage. He's throwing knees. He's throwing um, front kicks. He's throwing leg kicks. And when he started kicking at the end, he started having some success against Volkanovski in the fourth and fifth round. And, of course, him going to the body um, as well. And I will say one adjustment that I think Max needs to make is not to chase Volkanovski around. I think him chasing Volkanovski the first time, it gave Volkanovski a a fighter who has a lot of those quick twitch muscles and has really good fakes where it's like almost like a, a juke move in basketball where you're taking that quick stutter step. And that's what he did very, very well where every time Max was about to throw, he kept him off balance with that. And every time Max did throw, he slipped, ripped over the top, and that right hand kept coming over the hand of that, uh, kept coming over the left hand of Max Holloway every single time, and pretty much landing flush. There was one time, I think either in the, the third or fourth round, and 
Max was southpaw. He got cracked and looked like it stunned him a little bit. And there were some moments where, where Max had success, but I think that's the one adjustment he has to make. He's a longer fighter. When you step in against a shorter guy and you and they get past your reach, that's the opportunity where they get clean openings for strikes. So for a guy like Max, he has to keep him at the end of his punches and make him play the long game. So this way you can see all of his attacks from afar. And again, his quick twitch muscles makes him so quick to get inside, almost like a Henry Sayudo where he could bounce inside and, and sprint with a combination and get out of there. So I think that's the one adjustment Max really needs to make and to keep him at the end of his kicks, kind of like Mendez versus Conor McGregor. I can't see why Max can't do that same exact thing. Hit him with the front kick to the body, mm. slow him down. And Love then that, yeah. The, hand, the hands will come, and then he can start teaming him up towards the body. That's, yeah, that's my game, great- man, if I'm Max Holloway, if I'm coaching him. Yeah, I love that. That's a great call. Uh, and by the way, we're, we're going to do this for all three of these. I don't see any way that one doesn't go the distance. Like, those two guys are very powerful and they're good finishers, but you have to be careful if you're either guy in this scenario. That one is just made to go 25, yeah? Ah, uh, yes and no. I mean, Oh, wow, okay. Yes and no. I mean, Volkanovski has finished people in the past. Uh, I will say he's more of a grinder. And he likes to play safe. He likes to win. But, you know, it seems like the countdown had him really on edge and wanting to go out there and make a statement. So um, maybe that will cause him to open up a little bit more because typically he does fight safe. But there are a couple of finishes that he has sprinkled in his run to the title. So I can see him trying to get the finish on Max. But Max is so durable. And uh, Max has put more guys away. I think he's more of a finisher than Volkanovski. And I think if he did make the proper adjustments, the whole Zoom training shit, that kind of scares me a little bit and raises some flags, <laughs> but hopefully he's just blowing smoke and it's just to, you know, kind of keep Volkanovski guessing and like playing mind games. And um, if he made the adjustments, I could see him getting Volkanovski out of there. It seemed like he was the less of the pressure guys in that first round, that first matchup come the fifth round. But um, it's a fist fight, man. Every fight's different. Those two fights are the same. All right, and then we go lastly to the main event, Jorge Masvidal and Kamar Usman. Man, this is another one where it's like, I don't think people respect Kamar Usman enough. I mean, it's not that, listen, Jorge Masvidal has been in the trenches of not just 155, but 170 pounds, two of the toughest divisions in any uh, organization, in any part of the world. He has, yes, he's had some losses, but he's had some great wins too. I'm not here to demean his abilities. He's well-rounded at everything. Yeah. But Kamaru is not a guy who could make 155 of his life depended on it. He's a, he's a real 170-er. His gas tank is unbelievable, and he's going to be on you like white on rice. I think Jorge's got a bit of an uphill climb here. What's your sense of things? I think so. But the whole thing of six days notice, yeah, maybe six days to actually prepare for Usman. But I will say, from what I've heard, he's been training closely with uh, Dustin Poirier before his fight with Dan Hooker. So I'm going to say he's in shape. I don't know if the whole thing with him eating pizza on the plane is more of a, a publicity stunt kind of thing <laughs> to get, make the people just get excited and have questions. He's a big underdog. If I'm betting on a money fight for a dog, I'm betting Masvidal. He's a guy who's been around the block. He's fought the who's who's of both divisions. Well, not both divisions, but the 55. He's fought everybody. He's even fought Rafael Sunset back in the day, which says a lot. The guy's been around for 16 years and, uh, I think he's got the most fights ever under his belt before actually getting a UFC title shot. So I, I, something to be said about that, you know, just his journey. And um, I think his boxing, he's got the faster combinations. He's got the better combinations. I think uh, Usman's got the power. I think he's got the wrestling. He can c- control you against the cage. 
But I think Masvidal has fought enough grapplers at this point where that's kind of hard to say he's going to be sitting against the cage and just kind of hanging out and not throwing sh- uh, shots, throwing knees, trying to trying to just make it a dirty, grimy fight to uh, really keep Usman off of his game. Smart money is, you know, going with the safer pick, which I think is Usman, big, more powerful, stronger wrestler, can control guys, control Tyron Willie, control just about everyone he fought, Rafael Dos Anjos, all those guys. Um, but I think Masvidal has a speed department, and I think if he were to win this fight, it would have to be in the early goings of the fight to slow him down. We saw when he, we saw it looked like he was gassing when he fought Nate Diaz, when he went back to the corner, I think it was between rounds two going into the three where he had his hands above his head taking some heavy breaths, going back to his corner, um, him trying to get the finish. So that scares me a little bit, but I think he's crafty enough to know how to measure everything and going into this one. So this is, this is a lot of, this is a fun fight, man. This is a, a fight for the streets and this is a legacy fight, whether or not uh, Masvidal could ever attain UFC gold. You know, this is going to be probably his last shot at that. I would imagine, um, being, being his age and, um, it's tough to make two runs, you know, but um, I think – I don't know. I don't know. who You said you're going with Usman, the biggest – I mean, I, here's the thing. It's like I, I predictions, I just don't like doing them, dude, because you just never know what variables matter in a fight that we have no idea yeah. even exist. Like, does Camaro have a bad back or something, right? And then you go in there yeah. and he just, you know. So, in, in that sense, the only thing is it's just like here's what really it comes down to for me. If it's the Masvidal before he had that sojourn and before he'd really you know changed his mindset, I think Usman will just control him. A lot of guys who just sort of spam him with takedown attempts, they don't like overwhelm him, but they do enough to win. But if he's really made the switch where he says his mindset is different and he's not a split decision guy anymore in terms of being on the, 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 the losses, then maybe you're right. Maybe he's got all these sneaky other details. Just, I don't know if you know this or not, but they flew in Bo Nickel for uh, yeah. this camp. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, they were training with some real studs out there in, in Florida. So it's, it's, it's really who is Jorge Masvidal at 35 at this juncture in his career. I guess we're going to find out. That, that's what I was. That's pretty much what I'm getting at. And I think um, his kicks, man, he kicks it. It kicks up pretty fast, pretty powerful. We saw in the Cowboys Cerrone fights with the the kickboxing. If, if this is a kickboxing fight for him, Masvidal all day. So when I'm looking at Kamaru Usman, just skill set, not likability, anything. Just talking strictly the fight. I just think on paper, Masvidal has the better overall skill set in terms of jujitsu, in terms of boxing, in terms of kickboxing, um, even the dirty boxing. And even ground pound, I would say. Uh, Usman is just the bigger, stronger, more powerful guy. The fight with Kobe Covington, I rewatched that. And the first round, when both guys are fresh, Kobe looked faster. And I know he's smaller, so he should be faster, right? That's, that's the theory. When you're a lighter guy, you should be faster. He looked faster, and I like to think Masvidal is going to have a lot more pop on his hands than Kobe Covington, who's kind of doing more so arm punches. You know, so I think that's the difference. And I think Usman is going to be smart to, to try to get him tied and get those arms heavy right out of the gate and not try to trade with him. Because if he tries to trade with him like he did with Kobe in the first round, I don't care who you are. A chin, once it's tested, it, you will go down. That's just, the, that's just what happens. No one's superhuman. You can't train a chin. You can try to train the neck muscles and try to keep your chin tucked. But I think Masvidal does a great job of finding people's chin. So I would guarantee we saw that with uh, Ben Askren. And we saw even with Nate Diaz, you know, um, Dropped them multiple times. So, so this is a very fascinating fight from multiple standpoints. But um, smart money is to pick Usman for training camp. But I, I think to count out Masvidal would just be very, very naive. 
very naive, especially at these odds of him being the underdog. Fair enough. Well, we have to get out of here. We're up against a break. Aljamain, I'm looking forward to 251 and looking forward to seeing you wrap your uh, wrap your hands around the throat of the winner, I suppose, between Aldo and Jan. Looking forward to that. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. There he is. Aljamain Sterling. Luke Thomas Show coming right back. This is Aussie Football Rules America with Eddie McGuire. Pat McAfee. I think the AFL is going to take over America, and I think it's been a perfect time for me to discover it. I feel like a child. The dudes out there are just incredible athletes. The sport is so electric. It's so explosive. And I think it was the sport I was supposed to play. Catch new episodes Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern on Dan Patrick Radio Channel 211 and listen at home with Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or however you stream in the house. So the biggest news, frankly, of the day, it's certainly the one that people care about the most, I would, I would argue. Uh, Mike Perry is back at it again. Good Lord, this is terrible. Um, although I'm not going to pearl clutch too badly. All right, how do I explain this? Well, it depends. You can read the police report yourself. I think MMA Fighting got a copy of it. Now, he was not arrested, Mike Perry, um, but he was, I think, charged with misdemeanor assault, misdemeanor battery. Let me see if I get the name. I'm going to make sure I get this right. Um, he avoided arrest. This was in Lubbock, Texas. But here are what the details are. According to a police report, Perry allegedly struck at least three different people with one of the victims claiming he also struck a woman trying to break up the initial altercation. Perry was apparently angry and agitated when police arrived and he told officers these people were putting their hands on me as I was trying to leave the building. He then claimed that there was an argument between himself and the first victim and that the victim's girlfriend stepped in between them and began clawing at him. Perry claims that the second victim in the case then placed a hand on his shoulder, so he pushed his face back aggressively while telling everyone not to touch him. At that point, Perry claims he was trying to leave the restaurant when the third victim, the older gentleman seen in the video, which we'll talk about in just a second, approached him and grabbed his face and shirt. That's when Perry claims he struck the third victim and he fell to the ground, which, by the way, that gentleman was uh, taken to the hospital. I do not know his current condition. Perry alleges that he believed the first victim was, quote, saying things about, end quote, his girlfriend, Latori Gonzalez, and that's ultimately what started the incident. The second victim in the altercation told police that he witnessed Perry hit, quote, this guy who was later identified as the first victim in the assault. So the second victim claims he saw Perry hit a woman who was then the girlfriend of the person initially involved in the incident with the UFC welterweight. When he attempted to intervene, the second victim claims Perry punched him. The older gentleman who was punched by Perry in the video released was transported to Covenant Medical Center after he was allegedly knocked unconscious with one witness claiming he heard the man's head hit the concrete. Uh, Let's see. The third victim struggled to remember the incident when speaking to police after eventually the victim advised police he remembered Perry striking one person and then following the UFC fighter. Telling him that he witnessed the assault, the victim didn't remember the punch or afterward what happened. And there is a video where he also, Perry, uses racial slurs, which we'll play here in just a second. Um, Perry was only charged with Class A assault, which is a misdemeanor. Boy, they'll let you do anything in Texas, huh? He will be required to make a court appearance over the charge and could possibly face a fine up to 500 bucks. Uh, That's it. 
Okay. So let's set this up. If you guys have not seen the video, I'd be shocked. We'll retweet it at, at MMA on SiriusXM. They don't get the first incident, and they really don't get the second incident. Okay, here's what they get on the video. They get him, appears to be walking out of the restaurant slash bar. By the way, it looks like a reasonably nice place. I don't know exactly where it, what it is, but it seems okay. It seems fine. There are two women that walk by him. The first one, I believe, and we do not know this, is his girlfriend. She doesn't say a whole lot. There's another woman who walks by, Cobb. The second woman who walks by, the one who hands him his phone back, and this is the one that yells with him both before and after the third incident, the one where he decks the old dude. Is she the friend uh, or the girlfriend of somebody in the first or second incident, or does she work at the bar? What is your read on that? My guess is that's the girl... uh whose friend was hit or something along those lines. Cause I think she says something on the lines of you hit my kids. It's hard to make out and all the, and all the ruckus. Yeah. But she, I, she says, it sounds like she said something like you hit my cousin or something like that. So I think she's the girl whose friend got hit by Perry. All right. Well, she is my clearly guess. agitated, but she's not so crazy. She, uh, she gives Mike his phone back and is walking him out. And Mike, basically, if you guys didn't see this, Mike walks to the edge of the property, so he's off of the property, and people are telling him, you know, get out of here, get out of here, and he's like, no, I'm going to uh, wait for the cops so I can give him my side of the story, which, okay, fair enough. I mean, I can understand that, I suppose. Now, we didn't see the first or second thing. I can tell you in the third one, there are going to be some dumbasses who defend Mike. You can't, although I, I understand why they might try. Let's see if we can play this audio. I'll try and unpack it for you if this is the first you've heard of it. Uh, okay, so we have three cuts. It's going to sound a little weird, but I'll see if I can make sense of it for you. Here is the initial argument, uh, and then he's, I think, asking if the police have been called. I think the first and second incident have already happened, and then it leads to this. I'll just wait here, bro. Don't worry about it. Are you bringing the cops? Because if I leave, then I'm. Um, the did you touch me? No, sir, oh, you didn't touch he was me? Trying to calm you down, bro. You were hitting my face. He touched me. You were hitting my face. So he touched me. He touched me. You can all lie to him if you want to. You So there you have it. You hear a guy being questioned by Mike, being like. Uh, did you touch me? And the guy's like, no. And Mike's like, you didn't. It sounds like Mike had some incident with somebody else. And then this dude tried to intervene. Now, how he tried to intervene, your guess is as good as mine. But the way Mike is saying, did you touch me? I mean, Mike is not saying, did you punch me in the back of the head? Did you strike me? Blah, blah, blah. He's literally saying, did you touch me? Which leads me to believe that the guy might have grabbed Mike or something or grabbed a shoulder or grabbed an arm or maybe with two hands, something more aggressive than that, but didn't outright try to fight him and still got decked for his efforts. Uh, okay, so that's the first part. Um, then there's is this the, Cobb is cut to 
Where he decks the old man? Yeah, pretty much. You'll hear right off the bat, Mike's still going, and this guy, for some reason, thinks it's smart to intimidate a guy who's clearly agitated. Yeah. Yeah, this is where things get ugly and go off the rails. Okay, people will defend the next act. I think both people are stupid here, but there's this dude. I wouldn't call him super old, but... You know, he looks a little bit overweight, a little bit long in the tooth. I'm going to say 50 plus, something like that. And uh, he gets a big mouth in front of Mike and doesn't go well for either guy here. Play cut two. But y'all going to tell the police that I fucking yeah, did you know, uh, uh, police. Police. I'm yeah. not. Hey, Okay, understand what happened here. Mike is on the other side. He's clearly arguing with some of the patrons. Exactly which ones we don't we don't have a clear sense of. This other dude is standing there again. I don't know how old he is. I'm going to say 50 plus. Not in the greatest shape I've ever seen as a human being be in. No one is going to mistake this guy for David Goggins anytime soon. This dude, if you listen closely at the beginning. Mike says, call the police, which is, you know, sort of a, <laughs> you know, what do you want to say? It's a bit of a working class way to say the word police. And the guy mocks him for it. He goes, oh, yeah, you going to call the police like that, like mocks him. And then Mike says, I'll knock your ass out, too. And you see the guy kind of like get in Mike's face and I think even grab him or something like he clearly. Listen, man, if you're looking for a confrontation with people especially when those people are agitated, cannot be surprised when you succeed, man. If you are looking to mess with people and, uh, you know, it works, you can't be surprised. Now, Mike should not have hit this guy. Again, if the guy struck Mike, which is not clear from the tape, then maybe whatever. Okay, you know, it's still not great that he's in this situation, but it's not exactly clear that, that this guy was doing that. And in any event, you just look... I've said it before, dude. It's not hard to not get in fights at places. You know, and this place did not look like some, you know, biker bar, rough establishment. Look like just a regular nice restaurant. It's not hard to not get in fights. It's very easy. On the other hand, dude, I don't know what this guy was thinking. It's not that Mike has a right to punch whoever he wants or people that are, you know, um, mocking him. You can't just punch people who are mocking you. It's not. That's not how society works. On the other hand, the cops are not there yet. There is no barrier protecting you. And if you engage with an agitated person, by the way, Mike does not look like some out of shape fat ass. You know, Mike has tattoos on his face and he's bricked up. And you're going to sit there and, you know, further antagonize a guy who is clearly agitated. I keep, I say this all the time, dude. Sometimes it's hard to know if you're agitating somebody who can whip your ass and, you know, there's just no obvious tell, right? Maybe they're just tough and there's just no way to know. Dude, it was easy to tell, even if you didn't know it was Mike Perry, this is a rough customer. And number two, if you saw this guy, you'd be like, wow, dude, you really think you're that guy? 
And number three, I keep saying this to people. There are so many people who labor under the delusion that when push came to shove, they'd really be tough and they could handle themselves. It reminds me, I say it all the time, of the Onion article, Area Man Overestimates Fighting Ability by 4,000%. It is like any other. Fighting is a skill. People think that you're just born with it. You are not. Some have it, you know, like any other skill, are more naturally talented than others, but it is a skill. And if you have not refined that skill and developed it, <laughs> particularly against somebody who's a, you know, top, I won't say top ranked, but he's a very or good anyway. UFC fighter, it doesn't even have to be, it just could be a dude from the street. You are going to suffer consequences for it. Don't get into street altercations unless you have no other option. Otherwise, people like Mike Perry, dudes who are really about that life, they're going to lay your ass out on the concrete. It's just how it's going to go. Unless you have really taken years out of your life to develop fighting slash self-defense skills, I want you young men listening to me now to understand this. You don't have those skills. You think you do because it's very soothing to your ego to tell yourself that you do. You do not have them. You do not have them. And if you go up against anybody who has even a modicum of them, you are going to suffer potentially dire consequences. Don't do it. Don't do it. God knows if Mike was drinking. I don't even know if he was drinking or not. Um, you know, and it's just like, what the hell is the UFC supposed to do with this guy? I don't even know what the answer. I don't. I don't know what the answer is. I just know this. It's like one. It's hard for me to believe you can punch three people in one evening in a restaurant, and it's all their fault. Uh, On the other hand, it's pretty clear that in one of the cases, the third one, there was a guy looking for trouble and then probably doesn't like the consequences of finding it, which all this goes to show. It's like, dude, how hard is it to go to a restaurant and not get into a fight? I don't think it's that hard. I do it. Well, I mean, since the pandemic, you know, it's been a little bit hard, but I, you know, before the pandemic, I would do it all the time. Now we played the first of two cuts. One. The initial argument, too, somebody thinks that they're Billy Badass, and Mike Perry reminds them that there are levels to this, which is just an idiotic move on that guy's part. The other guy, not Mike. I mean, I, I don't know if Mike should have punched him or not. It's just hard to tell from the video. But then, after he hits him, basically all hell breaks loose. Cut three, please. Please, what is And he drops a few N-words and, uh, you know, everything else in between. What a mess. What a mess. Let me tell you something, man. If you can blame the third of these three incidents on the other dude if you want. And I wouldn't even fight you too much on it, to be honest, because that guy was clearly looking for trouble. He, he, he was being unnecessarily provocative. I'll put it that way. Here's the, other, here's the other reality. It's like, dude, I have a hard time believing that all three incidents are uh, totally understandable. And second of all, it's like, dude, if you engage in behavior like this, it's not about this incident. It's about the next one. I mean, can you go to a restaurant without fist fighting patrons? 
if you can't, something bad is going to happen. If not this time, then the next. I remember when people were like, oh, they're blaming the BJ Penn. Well, that's what Hawaiians do, which is like this weird racist, you know. Oh, they just, you know, they don't pay their taxes. They just show up to the IRS office in Honolulu and fist fight the comptroller. Like, like this is just a cultural practice. Like, oh, uh, can I get a uh, tall vanilla latte at Starbucks? What? You don't have $3? I guess we have to go fight the barista in the back alley as a way to figure out whether or not I can get my venti latte. You know, this is not how society functions. But what the UFC is going to do, your guess is as good as mine, man. Yeah, I don't know what the UFC should do here. You know, if this was if this was an athlete in any other sport, the team would drop him. And then some other team would pick him up after he was, you know, sufficiently contrite or whatever. It's, it was what happens. I remember when, the, when, when my skins picked up the, um, picked up the, uh, a junior galette after he was seen using a belt to whip a woman on a beach, you know, and then was like claimed it was self-defense. I don't think he was ever charged with much. And, uh, and then, you know, he had to be all contrite and stuff and he hasn't had trouble since, but you know, you'd still have a career, but it would definitely alter your trajectory a little bit. I, I, you know, I, I don't even know what the answer is anymore. I'm completely, it's totally against the UFC's code of conduct, but you know, does anybody care about that anymore? My whole view on this people are like, Oh, they're fighters. I'm like, no, they're patrons. They're patrons. That's when you walk into that bar, you know what you are? You're a patron. Act like one. And that goes for everybody. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.